Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we have opened your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and incline our hearts to your testimonies by the illuminating work of your spirit. Would you speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening and give us ears to hear and to receive your truth by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As we open up this morning to the 17th chapter in Luke's gospel record, we find ourselves in these opening 10 verses with what seems to be a hodgepodge of disconnected sayings. We have one concerning sin, temptation, forgiveness. We have another about faith like a mustard seed. And lastly, we have a reminder that we are to maintain the mindset of unworthy servants. But what appears at first to be a jumbled motley of various teachings, they are evidently linked together because there is no real break in Jesus' discourse all the way until verse 11, only then which begins a different scene altogether. By the way, let this serve as a reminder that the bold headings you see uh, in your Bibles, they are not part of the biblical text, uh, but they are editorial inserts from whoever printed your Bible translation crossway if you have the esv zondervan if you have the niv etc they've been inserted uh, by the editors intended to be helpful and they are helpful because without them i I suppose we would feel a little bit like we're just staring at a giant wall of text but they are meant to be helpful as checkpoints to quickly summarize the text underneath it but as helpful as they are if we put too much stock in it then we can sometimes end up reading the Bible in an overly disjointed way and miss the central point of what ties in these verses together. And so case in point here in verses 1 through 10, what is spread out by these three editorial headings is actually, I believe, meant to communicate a singular message that can only be gleaned by looking at the composite whole, which is that the great demands of living a life, of being faithful to Christ, can only be empowered by faith in Christ. In other words, God calls his people 
to the highest standard of holy living, fighting the good fight of faith and being faithful to remain the course and so finish the race. But the power and capacity to persevere in faith is not by looking to yourself and mustering up the best of your spiritual strength and ability within yourself, but it is by looking to Jesus away from yourself and resting in him with your eyes fixed upon him. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and how he describes and really encapsulates sanctification so concisely. He says, we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is to say that the sanctifying power which is able to transform us into greater Christ-likeness each day is found in beholding the Lord, locking our gaze unto Him through the eyes of faith. And all this is just another way of saying that apart from continued dependence on God's grace and what He is to us, we are powerless, even as believers to live out the difficult demands of following Christ in this dark and fallen world. Now notice how Jesus begins by acknowledging the the spiritual hardship that every one of his disciples must face in living the Christian life. The great weight and the demands of it. He said to his disciples in verse 1, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now here, Jesus begins by dispelling any false idea that Following him is some easy, happy-go-lucky ride on spiritual cruise control. No, in fact, it's an extremely rocky and bumpy road. Because it is a certainty, it is a guarantee that temptations and stumbling blocks will come your way. In fact, if I were to translate it literally, Jesus says it even more strongly. He says, It is impossible for stumbling blocks to not come. Why? Because a war is going on. And every Christian has been born again, born into wartime, into spiritual warfare. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that the Christian who was once previously formerly dead in sin, and fully given over to his sinful desires and thinking, and drifting along the current, just following the course of this world, God, by his amazing grace, and by the power of his spirit, he has raised this sinner to new spiritual life in Christ, awakened his spiritually blinded eyes, such that this reborn soul might now be able to live to know God through Jesus Christ and walk in His ways. But listen, this new birth, it doesn't displace the Christian into a different environment altogether. It's not that when a sinner repents and puts his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that all of a sudden he is teleported to some other planet or universe where sin no longer exists. No, 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 the Christian is born again to no longer be of the world, yet he still remains in this world. And we in Christ, we await the day 
when Christ will return and renew the whole cosmos to bring about the new heavens and new earth where sin is no more and where righteousness dwells forever. But until that day, we follow him and we walk in his ways, sojourning as pilgrims in this fallen world where the natural current flows away from God. And so the life of faithfulness to God requires us to fight against the current. You see, the natural course of this world is set against God in every way. In its thinking, in its beliefs, in its values, in what it prioritizes, in what it tells you is important and good and helpful and beneficial and and pleasing to you. The, The spiritual gravity of this world drags us down with temptation, obstacles, discouragements, enticements to charm you toward worldliness and to lure you into forsaking the path of remaining faithful to Christ. Look, look, the, the world is littered with spiritual snares and traps everywhere. Now, of course, there are the, the notorious, conspicuous, blatant vices, the allure of greed and fame, Uh, thirsting for power through violence, seeking pleasure through sexual immorality, uh, or enslavement to to illicit drugs or alcohol. But what about the more, shall we say, acceptable sins? The more commonplace sins, the more respectable ones, which are in fact just as deadly. Just a little dose of materialism, The love of worldly security and and comfort and control. Self-reliance and self-centeredness. Caring more about bodily health, financial health, whatever, worldly health, to the neglect of spiritual health. The idolatry of family, elevating them above God. The need for worldly acceptance and always needing to be liked by everybody. The fear of man driving us. You know, we always talk so much about all the sin and temptation out there. But let us never forget that the ultimate hostile environment is in here, in our own hearts, our own flesh in which we still remain, in the residue of our old sinful nature. Which is why we are exhorted in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war within. Now, all this to say, Christian, do you find that walking in holiness is quite difficult? Are you discouraged because sanctification is not easy for you? Is it a struggle and you feel winded at times? Don't be surprised. That's normal. Warfare is not hard. It's not like a birthday party where you play with Nerf guns. It's, it's war. It's not meant to be easy. I mean, there are forces at work within you and without to try to cause you to stumble and fall. Your own flesh is against you. So you, you can't follow your heart, as the world says. You must listen to and follow God's heart as revealed in his word. And that's not easy. And don't assume that it is. Rather, assume 
that growing in Christ and walking in obedience to Him is tremendously hard and that it'll take everything out of you. Now to clarify, this doesn't mean that sanctification is all by your strength, but rather that sanctification will demand all your strength. That's a huge difference. And it's not because it's an arduous burden to follow the Lord, but, but the demand of our full vigor and focus and energy is because of the sheer onslaught of obstacles actively opposing our walk with Christ. And to add to the weight of responsibility, uh, of the need to be watchful of our, our own lives, it's not only for our sake, but it's for the sake of others, lest we be an obstacle that hinders them. Jesus says, temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung, hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. God calls us to live in pursuit of godliness, to be a faithful living testimony of the transformative power of the gospel at work within us. And, and a great tragedy would be for us to instead be a poor Christian testimony and that by our lives and actions and our thinking that we end up repelling people from Christ or even stumble our brothers and sisters. And so Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Be mindful of how you live because the world is watching at your workplace, your neighborhood, in your circle of non-Christian friends. And every Christian who bears the name of Christ is an ambassador of Christ who represents him to the world. And the only question is whether you are representing him accurately and faithfully or you are misrepresenting him. And so we must be watchful that we never find ourselves being the cause of stumbling and leading others astray, away from God. But you know, these words are also quite comforting to us. Because here we see how protective Jesus is for his people. These little ones, he calls us so affectionately. And that's why he speaks so forcefully that it would be better for those who cause many to stumble to drown to death with a millstone around his neck. You know, a millstone was this massive upper stone used to grind wheat, which could weigh up to 3,000 pounds. You know what that is? That's a Honda Civic. Jesus was saying, it would be better for you to have a Honda Civic wrapped around your neck and drown to death in the ocean than to cause any one of my little precious children to go astray. Now, how about them apples at how God feels against all of those false teachers who use the Bible and usher people to the gates of hell in the name of Jesus? Not many of you should desire to be teachers, for by being teachers you will be strict, judged more strictly, James says. But you see, the spirit of these words is God saying, if you hurt my child, I will destroy you. Which I understand now as a father. I feel the same way. And as we battle against the forces of darkness, laying siege upon us as we walk by faith, what a comfort it is to know the voice of our defender and protector saying this ultimately from the vantage point of being by our side, defending us, shielding us. 
And so all the more, it is because we know how much God hates all causes of stumbling and how protective he is of his children that we are compelled to be all the more vigilant in walking in holiness. We have the responsibility of not causing others to fall. But not only that, we see that Jesus also charges us with the responsibility of helping others when they fall. Verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Every Christian has the God-given duty of holding each other accountable, being your brother's keeper. If you see your brother falling into sin, rebuke him. Now, this doesn't mean condemn him or beat him over the head with the Bible. But as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, that reproof goes hand in hand with correction. Jesus is saying gently but clearly correct your sinning brother. Lovingly call him back to the course of faithfulness. This is basic Christian responsibility. You know, some of us are perhaps too timid to take up this responsibility. Maybe it's because you were raised in a culture that taught you to mind your own business. Never intrude on anyone or, or confront someone. Keep the peace at all costs, no matter what the cost. And just, just leave people alone. And it's shameful to speak up. But listen, all of that is elevating the traditions of men above the word of God. God calls you to be your brother's and sister's keeper. And to shy away from this duty is actually not loving, but selfish. And frankly, it is cowardly. We must renew our minds with God's way of thinking. Now, of course, you should never micromanage other people's lives, nor should we foster a culture of policing other people in this church. That's horrific. Jesus said, first and foremost, pay attention to yourselves. Okay, don't be some hound that goes around sniffing up everybody, hunting down every speck of sin. Sniff yourself and take the log out of your own eye before you look to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But having said that, when you happen to notice a brother or sister wandering away and persisting in unrepentant sin, then it is your God-given duty to gently, winsomely, patiently, and faithfully correct your brother or sister and seek to restore them onto the path of righteousness. Look, all of this is simply what church membership is about. A mutual accountability and binding commitment to each other. Church membership is not optional for the Christian. It is mandated by God. And many avoid formally committing themselves as a member of a local church because they don't want to be held accountable nor do they want to hold others accountable and re be responsible for them. But that's not biblical Christianity. God has called us to this duty of bearing one another's burdens. And not only that, but bearing with one another. Bearing with them in love and grace. Being, being relentless to forgive any personal offense they might do to you. Verse 4, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I think about that. That's a lot of times. In one day? 24 hours? You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But three, four, five times? My goodness. I'm ready to throw in the towel. My patience will start wearing thin around the three or four mark. 
But here Jesus says so clearly, you are to hold no bitterness toward each other, no matter what is done to you. There is nothing more unchristian than holding a grudge. No matter how much wrong or hurt someone has done, that will never compare to how offensive your sin was against God, and yet He has lavished tender mercy and grace, forgiving your sin at the cost of His own Son. And so Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a call to Christ-like holiness, to be like Him. You must be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Grace and restoration and reconciliation must be at the heartbeat of the Christian life and the life of the congregation of God's church. Now, if we can summarize these first four verses thus far, Jesus is calling us to be, first of all, to be watchful over our own life for our own sake, and then to be watchful over our life for others' sake, to not be a cause of stumbling, and also to be watchful over the lives of our brothers and sisters, over others' lives, even bearing with all their burdens and sins, even if it's done to us, and to bear with them with the utmost grace and patience. All of these are the weighty duties of the Christian life, the demands of holy living. And in hearing all of this, Jesus' disciples, specifically the twelve, his apostles, they apparently felt a little bit overwhelmed. And maybe you do too. And they rightly realized that in order to faithfully live out God's will for them and to do what Jesus has called them to do, that it was going to require supernatural empowerment. And they're right on the money thus far. And so, in verse 5, they asked Jesus for what seemed to be a very sincere biblical request, which was this, Lord, increase our faith. And you would think that Jesus would reply, very well, you have asked wisely. Here you go. I don't know how you would increase faith. But instead, Jesus pushes back on this request and responds in verse, six, in verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What's all this about? Why did Jesus push back? Now, this is most important in tying this whole passage together. Because the point here is not for us to test how powerful is our faith by trying to talk to trees and see if they can jump. Please don't do that. And if you must do that and be found doing that at the local park, please don't tell people you go to Maranatha Bible Church, okay? (laughs) That's just weird. But to the contrary of the focus being about how powerful is our faith, the whole point is the opposite of anything to do with our spiritual prowess and what we are capable of doing. Because although the apostles' request was sincere, there was an underlying misconception of where the source of spiritual strength lies. If you notice, they said, increase our faith, as though faith were some spiritual ability or skill set 
within themselves that could and needed to be leveled up. But that implies that all of the aptitude and capability to do what God has called is all within yourself. That it's dependent on, here and now, your spirituality. What a man or woman of faith you are by nature. And you just need God's help in turning up the dial a little bit in reaching your full spiritual potential. But Jesus here is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about your faith, how powerful it is. And so he speaks in this extreme hyperbole to illustrate his point as he often does. And he says, look, let me put it this way. You can have the tiniest measure of faith in the world. The smallest dosage of it, if we could call it that, for the sake of argument, so small, let's say it was like a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed in the garden. If you had it in your hand, it was a little speck that could be mistaken for a piece of dust. So you could have the smallest faith, but even with this tiniest amount of faith, because that's how they were thinking, they were thinking quantitatively, it would still be sufficient to empower such a supernatural act as telling a full-grown mulberry tree, which is 20 foot high, with roots deeply anchored underground, to go and jump into the ocean and it would obey you. Why? How? Because the source of spiritual power is not in the degree of your faith, but it is entirely in the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't this simply the gospel? Listen carefully. It is not ultimately your faith that saves you, but it is Christ who saves you. And saving faith is trusting that Christ is sufficient to save you. You know, some of you here, you are not yet saved and born again. But I wonder if the main stumbling block and obstacle hindering you from receiving the gift of his salvation is that deep down, whether you realize it or not, you still think that salvation is somehow about your faith, whatever nebulous idea you have about that. And as spiritual as that may sound, that implies that salvation ultimately depends on what a spiritual person you can be, how robust of a conviction you are capable of possessing whether or not you can successfully muster up sufficient degree of faith, all with the hopes that these things will contribute to you one day, reaching a sufficient level of quote-unquote Christian faith, whatever that means. But that's not the gospel. That's a very subtle message of self-reliance and self-righteousness. Because the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ has already done and finished everything on behalf of sinners. Perfect obedience done by his sinless life, lived vicariously for them. Forgiveness of sin finished on the cross where he hung in agony in the place of sinners he came to save, exhausting and satisfying God's infinite wrath for them. He took on our punishment. What about our need to please God and be restored to a harmonious relationship with him? 
He accomplished even that too on behalf of sinners as the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased and for sinners who are united to him. They are infinitely and eternally beloved because they have been made inseparably one with the beloved son of God. So then, well, if that's the case, what must I do to be saved? Just confess that you can't save yourself. Just admit your sin to God. That you can't do anything and trust in what Jesus Christ has already done and accomplished for sinners like you. Rest your faith in who Jesus is and what He has done. It's a very simple question. Do you trust Him? Do you believe that He alone is sufficient for life and death and eternity? That's saving faith. This is the good news. It is not your faith that saves you, but it is Christ, the object of faith, who saves you. And faith is simply the instrument of receiving Christ because He is all yours and you are made all His simply by putting, by resting your trust in Him, in His grace and all-sufficient mercy. And the joy of the Christian life is growing each day to trust Him more and to grow to increasingly realize how trustworthy is the one in whom you have believed and by whom you were saved. This is the love and kindness of God for sinners, that He has sent His Son to be the all-sufficient Savior. And all the power and authority to save sinners is found entirely and solely in Him alone. We only need to look to Him, just turn to Him, and He will be the one to lift us, to carry us, to cleanse us, and even to sanctify us all the way to the ends. And Christian, you must understand that this never changes for you, even as a Christian now. You and I are still totally powerless in and of ourselves. Each day as we walk to pursue His will, we must grow to take our eyes off of ourselves and cast our sight upon Christ. And again, this is so subtle, but so important in empowering your walk with the Lord. Because all of our daily and lifelong struggles is summarized in this, that we, though being in Christ, and though being bound to Him, we still have this tendency to take our eyes off of Jesus. And I don't mean this in just the simplistic, notorious, blatant sense of having our eyes wander and lust after the things of the world and utterly forsake and walk away from it. I'm not talking about that mainly. But even in how our eyes can be focused on good, holy things, on wanting to please Him, on our obedience to Him, all the service that we can render to Jesus, on our faithfulness and devotion to Him, which are wonderful things, holy aspirations. God calls you to them. But when we put our eyes on those things, as good as they are, we have still taken our eyes off of Jesus. And that's why He proceeds to say in verse 7, 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, that is, come and sit down for a meal of appreciation and gratitude? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, you are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, at first, this might sound like Jesus is saying, hey, just be quiet, suck it up, and do what you're told. Don't expect anything else. Well, that's, not, that's not Jesus. He's no harsh master. In fact, remember the amazing thing he said earlier in chapter 12, verse 37. He said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Jesus is the most gracious and generous master, endlessly lavishing upon his people undeserved blessings. So what is he saying here then? Well, what he says here about being unworthy servants is to tell us to be careful that as we serve him and live to carry out his will, that we don't fall into the mindset of thinking that our service to him is what makes us worthy before him that because we labored out in the field because we toiled in the pursuit of holiness that somehow that is what warrants receiving his rewards forgetting that every reward waiting for us in heaven is still all an undeserved gift of his grace But, you see, this is so often our tendency to look at our own works, even if we mean them as a worshipful response to his love for us. We can fixate on our own hands and the service we render to him rather than being captivated by his nail pierced hands. And how he has given all of himself to us and continues to uphold us with those tender hands living daily and hourly in every moment, depending and leaning on his hands to carry us. You see, Jesus is teaching us here to not draw attention to all of our striving and doing things for his honor and glory as good as it is. Because inevitably, focusing on our service to him, fixated on on what great things we can do for God, we will eventually find our strength and spiritual gusto losing steam, running out, and we'll get burnt out. Just like Martha. Remember Martha and Mary back in chapter 10? She was distracted away from Jesus with what? Not with much sinning, but she was distracted with much serving. Serving God can replace knowing God. And when we do so, we've taken our eyes off of him and relied on ourselves. Do you remember that interesting passage in Matthew's gospel in chapter 14 of Jesus walking on water? But not only that, what actually makes that passage especially interesting and and really the, the heart and the point and message of it is not only Jesus walking on water, but remember Peter walked on water too. It was in the middle of the night. They were out in the sea. Jesus wasn't with them. He was still left on the shore. 
But all of a sudden, this, the disciples saw into the dark, open water, this person walking on the sea. And they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. My goodness, if I was there, I'd, I'd jump ship. I'd, I'd run away. But as Jesus got closer, he said, don't be afraid. It's me. It is I. And Peter said, Lord, if that's you, command me to come on the water. And Jesus said, come, Peter, come to me. And so Peter, he got out of the boat. And he put his foot on the water. And he walked on the water toward Jesus. Peter had a little mustard uh, seed-sized faith. But Peter loved the Lord. Peter was always captivated by Jesus. He loved Jesus, always wanted to be with him every moment he could. So much so that as soon as he saw Jesus on the water, he, he, he couldn't wait for Jesus to come to him. He wanted to go to Jesus. Because he was rash and impetuous like that. And he wanted to walk toward Jesus because he wanted to be face to face with him. He wanted to see him. His eyes were set upon him. And so he walked on water. But do you remember what happened next? He came to Jesus. He made it all the way to him. But it says that when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And began to sink. When his eyes, which were seeing Jesus, seeing his face, running towards him like a little child. When he looked around, all of a sudden, took his eyes off of Jesus, saw what was going on. He wasn't able to walk on the water anymore. Isn't it remarkable that even when Peter was doing the most incredible supernatural things, literally walking with the Lord, I mean, we talk about it figuratively and spiritually, but he was doing it literally on water. When his eyes veered just a little bit, he looked at the wind, and then he probably looked at his feet, and then he looked at his circumstance, and then he looked at his ability, and he thought, what what am I doing here? Am I crazy? How did I get here? I can't do this. What am I, who am I thinking? I don't have the strength to walk on water. Then he began to sink and forgo the power of God at work within him. But for as long as his eyes were fixed upon Jesus and not his own hands and feet, Peter was empowered by the Spirit of God to walk with Christ even through and upon the most impossible terrain of open waters. Because this is how the transformative power of God's Spirit is manifested in us when we behold the glory of the Lord. And as we do, we are magnetically drawn to His beauty and love and our hands and feet follow supernaturally where the eyes of our hearts long to go. Christian, the life of faithfulness to Christ is difficult. It's hard. It's hard like walking on water. Impossible. And he has called us to the highest standard of holy living. And many stumbling blocks await on the path. But God has provided 
all that you need to fight the good fight of faith until the end. And all the power and resource and strength you need is not by focusing on your, your stride, your dexterity, your alacrity, your spirituality. But it is found solely in locking your gaze on Jesus, on His sufficiency, on His grace, on His wondrous love, and His all-satisfying glory. Are there sins in your life that you've been struggling with and stumbling over? Do they weigh you down and cling so closely? Learn to focus less on how well or not well you've been handling them. Stop making promises to God, resolutions and commitments that you're too weak to keep. Rather, learn to rest your eyes on His promises to you in the gospel. His assurance of unchanging pleasure over you. Strive not to do better, first and foremost, but strive to see better. Get a better look at His lovely face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His lovely face. And the things of earth, you will find, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That is how God empowers us. Get a better look at His face. His face that always calls out to you, even in the wee hours of the night. Don't be afraid, it's me. Come to me. Walk towards me. Christian, be drawn to Christ, to holy living, by the magnetic power of His love for sinners. And you will find that there is more power in but a moment's glimpse of His face than a thousand chariots rushing uphill. And when we come before God in eternity, may it never be that we should think to say, Lord, I did this for you, I did that for you. But may our first and forever words be, Lord, you did everything for me. And even me crossing this finish line, I see now looking back, that it was only by your grace all along causing me to persevere when so many times I felt so tired and knocked down to, uh, to the ground for good and wanted to give up. But now I understand fully that from you and through you and to you are all things. To you alone be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for revealing to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, of who you are and what you are like, that you are the all-sufficient giver and source of life, that everything comes from you, everything is through you, and everything is unto you, and that Christ is all and all is in Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, and we ask that you would help us to remember that which we forget so often, to look to Christ, to rest upon Him, and to cling to Him, our great object of faith, the one who is secure and firm, the rock of our salvation, and that everyone who hopes in Him will never be shaken. Father, we thank you for the gift of 
the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that you have given to us, that through this you intend for us to partake of it regularly so that we might be regularly reminded of all that is in Christ and to know that we live not by our own striving or doing, but we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we ask now that as we prepare to receive these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup, that you would by your Spirit set these apart to supernaturally and extraordinarily remind us of the sweetness of the gospel. For your sake, in Jesus' name, amen.